Introduction to the Resurrection. In Romans 10.9 it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at what God does. He couples, he couples salvation with belief in our heart. That means belief from our innermost being that God has raised Jesus from the dead. This is an important thing. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you want to question your faith. You want to question your faith. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, because if you look at what is the barrier, he never says we have to believe in the virgin birth. He never says we have to believe in Adam and Eve. He never says we have to believe in angels or the devil. Although, you may want to believe in that because Jesus certainly did. What we have to believe in is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is pretty foundational then. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this chapter talks about the resurrection. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there, in other words, there's an ability to believe in vain. And I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised from the dead on the third day. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the most important thing. The most important thing that I can tell you, Paul says, is that He's risen from the dead. He lived, He died, He was buried... And he rose again from the dead. That's the most important thing. Without this, we should be fearful that we may be believing in vain. Then he continues. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter, Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Look at what Paul is doing. He is building a legal argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he does is he lists all the people that saw Jesus physically risen from the dead. And he even says, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Hallucinations are not shared. 500 people do not hallucinate simultaneously and see some figure of Jesus. One person might, another person might, but they are not shared. They're not in unison. And he's saying, here's the names of them. Go ahead, talk to them. He says there were 500. Paul is speaking this word about 20 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. So some of the people... We're no longer alive. And he says, and some have fallen asleep. That is the New Testament terminology. Jesus also used it for people who believed on Him who have then died. He referred to them as having fallen asleep. He said, for example, Lazarus. Lazarus is asleep. That was the code word for he's dead, but he's asleep because death is not the end of the life of the believer. The little girl uh, 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 who had died, he said, she's not dead, she's just asleep. That was, and, and so he says that, that they're very much alive, but in another state. They've died physically. But he lists them out. <clears throat> then he, he goes on, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also, your faith also is vain. So in other words, this is so foundational. Sometimes I, I invite professors to the faculty club, to the Cohen House, and as soon as I sit down with them, I want to just test where they are. So I say, as soon as we sit down, I say, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
I just want to see where they're at. Because based on their response to that, I know. Based on their response to that, I know where they are. When, one day some students came to me, they said, well, you know, we, there, there's, this, there's uh, this professor in the religion department, and, and I think he's saved, but I'm not sure. I said, okay, I'll find out. So I invited him to lunch, and we sat down, and, and, and uh, as soon as we sat down, I said, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? He said, uh, uh, physical, probably not. I said, okay, tell me your story. And, and uh, so he, he was a, a Baptist evangelist, he told me, and then he went to Harvard Divinity School to get his Ph.D. in religion. I said, oh, stop right there, let me guess. You went into Harvard believing in the physical resurrection and you came out not believing. And he sheepishly said, oh, well, yeah, maybe that was the beginning of it. Another professor, another religion professor, I asked him the same question. He says, oh, physical resurrection? No, physical resurrection is unimportant. The spiritual part. Jesus Christ has risen physically from the dead. People saw him, touched him, which we'll see. Without this, our faith is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. How much more explicit could the man be? He says, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Without the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, faith is worthless. So to say, oh, it's okay, you know, they can. Well, we're all Christians, you know, we're all Americans, so we're all Christians. Paul had something very different to say about that. He says, if, there, if you don't grab hold of the resurrection, your faith is in vain. It's in fact worthless. Talk about offending people. I mean, Paul wasn't afraid. <clears throat> the physical resurrection. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So, so uh, um, there were twelve apostles that walked with Jesus initially. There were many more after that that, that God had raised up in that first generation. The, the test of apostleship, they had to have seen Jesus risen from the dead and, and, and be called. But remember that, that uh, Judas went off and hung himself. They had, uh, and this was before Matthias came in to, to take his place, so that there were 11. So Jesus had appeared to 10 of them, but Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to them. So, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, does that sound to you like a man who is trying to believe? Oh, it sounds like a typical skeptic. I mean, you ten guys tell me that you physically saw Jesus risen from the dead. I happen not to be there, but I'm just not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. And this guy, Thomas, kept them in Jerusalem an extra eight days. It says. They were supposed, Jesus told them repeatedly, meet me up in the Galilee. He kept them there an extra eight days because he wouldn't believe. And they were trying to convince this guy. He was a very influential guy among them. He says, I'm not going to believe it unless I take my finger and I put it into the hole in his hand. And remember when Jesus was on the cross, they stabbed the hole into his side. And he says, unless I stick my hand into that hole in his side. So Thomas was not wanting to believe. He was a typical skeptic. It wasn't like, I've got to believe, I've got to believe, I've got to believe. No, he wasn't trying to believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. This is the typical Jewish greeting which is still used today. Shalom Aleichem. Peace be unto you. This is what Jesus said to them. Then, Thomas, then he said to Thomas, so, so you got these 11 guys there. He says, hey Thomas, come here, i got something for you. 
Reach here your finger and see my hand, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Look at what Jesus did. He heard what Thomas said. I'm not going to believe unless I stick my finger into the hole in his hand and stick my hand into the hole in his side. Jesus' body was not yet glorified and not yet, he, he had not yet risen up to the Father. So he still had these scars on him. And he invites Thomas up and he says, you wanted it? Go ahead. Stick your finger right here in the hole in the hand. Thomas it's all right. I want you to do it. You said, this is what it's going to take. Do it. I put your hand into the hole in my side. Go on in deeper. Feel it in there. This is what he wants to do. Whether he actually did or not, we don't know. Maybe he did. But Jesus invited him to do this. And then he says, he says, uh, um, Thomas, and he said, stick it into the hole of my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. You know, we, we think, oh, it must have been such a great thing to see Jesus physically. Jesus said, you're more blessed when you believe and you haven't seen me. That's who we are. How can we believe in something like this? Jesus gives us the ability to believe it. And he says, you are more blessed. We have a greater blessing having not seen him and yet believing. In Luke chapter 24, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Shalom Aleichem. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Jesus is standing in their midst. This is after He's risen from the dead. And they thought they were seeing a spirit. Remember the spiritual resurrection? Jesus wanted to put that to rest. This is not just a spiritual resurrection. This is physical. He says, why are doubts arising in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He challenges, come on, touch me. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Look at what Jesus does. I mean, this guy's amazing. Just come on, touch me. Come on, crowd around. What do you think of that? Feel that bicep. Come on, touch me. You guys got anything here to eat? I mean, this sound typical. You got something here to eat? They knew Jesus loved fish. Jesus was always multiplying fish, you know, feeding 5,000 people fish. Tuna fish sandwiches, that's his favorite. He loved fish. Fish and bread. And so, he says, uh, he said, you got something here to eat? So they're thinking, give the man fish. If he eats fish, it's Jesus. That man loves fish. They gave him a piece of fish. He took it and he ate it. Spitting bones out. He says, now let me ask you, you ever seen a spirit eat? Have you? I ask you, have any of you ever seen a spirit eat? No. Spirits don't eat. He says, "There's, there's flesh here. He's demonstrating, do you see, this can't be merely a spiritual resurrection. Physical. Jesus put the spiritual resurrection thing to rest. It's a physical resurrection. So, now let me take you through a little bit of, of typical logic. It's simple, simple stuff. This is my family, the Tour family. Jim and Shireen. Shireen is my wife. Jim and Shireen Tour. We have four children. Ambreen and Sabrina, Josiah and Ben. Four children. Alright? So, I'm just going to take you through a little fictitious exercise. Jim and Shireen and their children left the campsite and hiked up a mountain. Okay? So we left the campsite, hiked up a mountain. Jim, Shireen, and their children. Upon reaching the mountaintop, Jim saw a dragon in a lake. Alright? This is just fiction, but I'm building something here. Stay with me. Jim saw a dragon in a lake. The tours came back to Houston from the campsite. 
they told others about the dragon they had seen on the mountaintop. So if I'm back in Houston, it must be a long way from this place because there's not too many mountains around here. I think that, that little building out there is like the tallest hill in all of Houston. They, the tours came back in, to Houston from the campsite, told others about the dragon they had seen on the mountaintop. So, did Umbreen, that's my daughter, hike up the mountain? Did she hike up the mountain? We don't know. It says Jim, Shireen, and their children left the campsite and hiked up the mountain. doesn't say all their children. Maybe Jim and Shireen, Sabrina and Josiah hiked up the mountain. We don't know. Okay, so the answer is we don't know. From that state, from what is written there, we don't know. <clears throat> Did the tours go together up the mountain? We don't know. All we know is Jim and Shireen and the children left the campsite and hiked up the mountain. This happens to my wife and I all the time. We go to the airport, and, and you know, the kids are older now, but now, now it's even worse. But, but we would go through security at the same time, and I would get to the gate 20 minutes before my wife. So I'm just walking, going to the gate. I mean, she's looking here, she's looking there, she's going to Starbucks. So we left at the same time, but we didn't go together. Happens all the time. When, I, when we got two cars, we had a lot less arguments in our family. Because I would be out on the driveway on Sunday mornings, and she'd be inside, and I don't know what her problem was. What, I'm just out honking the horn. What's your problem? I mean, why would she come out all, all hot and everything? You know? It, and, but when we got two cars, it was much easier. Because I could go, and then she could go, and, and uh, she would just park in the, in the visitors-only slot. <laughs> She'd get a good parking spot. But we went separately. We went to church, but we didn't go together. That's exactly what this says. Jim and Shereen and their children left the campsite. We don't know when they went together, if, whether we went together or not. Maybe we, we, you know, I walked fast. We don't know. Did Shereen ever see the dragon? Did she ever see a dragon? Don't know. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. We just don't know. Did Shireen tell others about the dragon? We don't know, do we? There's nothing incongruent about any of these statements. We just don't know. I want you to remember this. Now, how many dragons did Jim see while on the mountaintop? We don't know. We, all we know is it's greater, is, is that Jim saw a dragon in a lake. For all we know, Jim saw a dragon in a tree, too. We don't know. It's at least one. Now, he told the others about the dragon they had seen. So we don't know how many he saw. All we know is we saw one or may have been greater than one. That's all we know. You remember this because what happens is this. This is very simple, right? This is not hard to understand. But when people read the Bible, they do this. They come to read the Bible, and they first take out their brain, and they set it over here, and then they start reading. And they say, this is all messed up. Your Bible's all messed up. It doesn't make any sense. What we're going to do is we're going to put our brains back in, and we're going to look at this. So here are some records of the resurrection that raise questions for people. So they'll see the resurrection account, and they'll say... Oh, this is all messed up in here. It doesn't make any sense. So, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So, listed there are two Marys. One Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out, and the other Mary. There are so many Marys that Jesus dealt with. We don't know which one was the other Mary. All right? But there were two, two women are mentioned. You go to Matthew 28.10 and it says, Now there were, there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. And also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So it lists three women by name. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, plus some others, right? Three women by name, plus some others. Are these two contrary to each other, or could they co easily coexist? 
there's no discrepancy here. Right? There's no discrepancy. This just mentions two. It doesn't say anything about, about others. Here it mentions three and it says some others. Mark 16.1 When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Mentions three women. Again, that, there's no problem there. Three women are mentioned. Here three women plus some others are mentioned. Here two women. But this isn't saying two women only went to the gravesite. That's it. None. Zero more. It doesn't say that. This is just reporting what's happened. Luke 24. Now, there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and also other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. So it says, three plus some others. Where's Salome? You don't know. It didn't mention Salome. Maybe she's in that group of other women. Maybe Luke didn't mention her by name. None of these are incongruent with one another. Do you see what I mean? And people will read this and they'll say, oh, it's all messed up. It's not messed up at all. John 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. It only mentions one woman. But that's okay. We don't know... If she came twice, we don't know that if she came, it began to dawn toward the first. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Never even says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went together. They probably didn't. It just says they both went up. Happens all the time in my family. We start walking somewhere and we end up... Very, did that ever happen to you, Joe? Yeah. I mean, it's just, just at all different times. And then when the kids are teenagers... They enjoy going off in the other direction. That's the part of finding themselves. Go to a store and all the kids disappear. Matthew 28, verse 5 and 6. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. So an angel says something to a group of women. Mark 15, verse 5 and 6. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, he's, behold, here is the place where they laid him. So there was a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. Here it describes him as an angel. There was a young man sitting, wearing a white robe, saying, Do, do not be amazed. You go to Luke, it says, And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Remember I said, uh, Jim and Shireen and their children went up to the mountain. How many of the children? Don't know. Here it mentions one, here it mentions two. It doesn't say one and only one were there. It just mentions two here. And the women were terrified. The men said to them, so it mentions two of them. But, but neither of these is conflicting. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they, the women, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to the, report this to the disciples. So the women run to report this to the disciples. That's what it says. Mark. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they, the women, said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh Uh-oh, we found an error in the Bible. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And they ran to report it to his disciples. How can this be? I'll show you in a moment just how this can be. It's really very simple how this can be. Okay, so here's how we can resolve all of these accounts. This is just one way to put it together. So this this is one way that all of this fits. Women set out for the grave to anoint Jesus' body with spices. There are several women, including Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, Mary, and the mother of James, and one one or more, and and, and one or more. So here's, here's the people. So there's greater than or equal to five women that ultimately go. Mary proceeds faster than the others and arrives at the grave before the others arrive. All right? That's why it says Mary walked up there. 
Mary sees the stone rolled away and Jesus' body missing. She sees no angel, no Jesus, and she immediately turns and runs to report this to Peter and John. That's what it says. She ran back and reported it to Peter and John. While Mary is off getting Peter and John, the other women arrive at the tomb. Alright, so while, while Mary's off getting Peter and John, the other women now finally arrive at the tomb. The other women arriving now at the tomb see the stone rolled away and angels telling them that Jesus is risen from the dead. Terrified, they flee and become scattered as they run. Alright, so you think you're going to see two angels and become frightened as it says? And the women are all going to hold hands and just run away? Now they just run. You know, you've got trees between you and... It's at night. Just, things are just beginning to dawn. It's hazy out here. And they're running. Sometime during the other women's, not including Mary, flight, they become divided and Jesus appears to more than one of them, but not all of them. He comforts those he appears to and he tells them to tell the brethren, which they do. The other women who were fleeing and not present at this appearance of Jesus continue to run away and out of fear tell no one about their sightings the move stone, the angels in the tomb. While the other women are in flight from the tomb, John and Peter arrive, and Mary likely running near them, probably behind them, probably behind John and Peter. In fact, the scriptures say that John beat Peter to the tomb and was just looking in, and Peter just walked up, just walked right in. And, and uh, Mary was there, and I'm assuming Mary was behind them, only because I'm assuming women run slower than men. But in this group, that's not a good assumption. So, but, um, so uh, now Peter and John see the grave closed, but see no angel, no Jesus. Je- John leaves home for home believing, while Peter leaves for home in amazement. Mary is left standing at the tomb without John and Peter. Mary then sees and he- hears angels. Then she sees Jesus, first thinking him to be the gardener until he calls her name. After seeing and hearing and clinging to Jesus, she runs to tell the disciples that she's seen him. This sighting of Jesus is just before Jesus appears to one of them in, in uh, or one or more of them in point six. All of this then fits. Now, you say that that's too cocky of a story. That's, that's too messed up. There's no way. That is exactly what you would do if this had not been fabricated. If this had been fabricated, now let me take you through what would the, gospel, what would the resurrection account look like if it had been fabricated. There never would have been an account over four Gospels like this. These four Gospels are telling a story that makes perfect sense. You can come up with several scenarios where this works. But it never would have been explained in this way. It would have been much neater, much cleaner, had it been fabricated. Such an account argues against its fabrication. They would have waited a prudent amount of time, like a hundred years, before publishing this account. Why? Because such is the form of legends to ensure that all witnesses have died. All legends start at least a hundred years, generally hundreds of years after the event. You want everybody to die. So there's no real accounting of it. This is not a legend. This started immediately after the resurrection. This has started being publicized. This never would have happened had it been fabricated. The early origin of the resurrection argues against its fabrication. They would have published the account far from the venue of its occurrence. You would never start publishing this in Jerusalem. You'd go into the Galilee or far away. You'd never come up with a legend right there at the same time, the same place. If it had been fabricated, this would have done, been done outside of Jerusalem. The resurrection account beginning in Jerusalem argues against its fabrication. They would have been more selective with the choice of witnesses. So remember here, he says he appeared to Cephas, the twelve, five hundred brethren at one time. This is where hallucinations are not shared. You never would have named them by name. Never. When you're making something up, you never say, go check with this person, this person, this person, and this person. You never do that if you're making it up. There's no way that this story could have been fabricated. They never would have named people by name. They would have been more selective. In John, chapter 19, it says, And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, 
who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. He names two people by name, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of them are on the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is 70 members plus the high priest. These guys are the Supreme Court members. He's naming them by name. These guys were secret disciples. These guys, we never are told whether they see the physical risen Lord, but extra-biblical texts tell us that both of these guys suffered tremendously for their being disciples of Jesus. He names them by name. Both were on the Sanhedrin. The account listing the names of witnesses argues against the account's fabrication. Mary, this is a key point. Mary never would have been identified to see Jesus first. You read the scriptures multiple times. It says, Mary saw Jesus first. John chapter 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has risen, and, and that he said these things. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene first appeared to Mary. And he second appeared to some other women who were running away before he ever appeared to a man. The scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then after that, where's, where's Mary? Why didn't Paul mention Mary? Don't you think Paul knows that Mary's not? Because Mary is irrelevant because she's a woman. In that day, a woman had no legal standing. None. It is like asking the family dog, is this the man who robbed the house? Did you see him come? It doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. The woman had no legal standing in Israel nor in Rome to have any testimony of this. Why would Jesus first appear to women? Why would the Bible report that he first appeared to women? Why would the Bible do that? Because that's the way it happened. Jesus doesn't care about the rules. Remember Jesus said, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. He cast out seven demons from Mary. She loved Him so much. He was appearing first to Mary. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is building a legal argument for the resurrection. Saying our faith is in vain if we don't have it. In the legal argument, the women are irrelevant. This argues so strongly. The account listing Mary as the first witness argues overwhelmingly against its fabrication. Had it been fabricated, they never would have put a woman seeing Jesus first. Because her testimony is irrelevant anyway. This argues, again, that this is not a fabrication. This is exactly how it happened. There would have been supernatural displays at the moment of Jesus' coming out of the tomb. We never have any account of what it was like when Jesus first came out of that tomb. Nobody saw when he first came out. The nearest were the guards over the tomb. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I put the word fainted in there. Became like dead men. You faint or something. So, this angel comes and he appears like, this is not Cupid. This is an angel. It's like lightning. He comes and he rolls away the stone and he sits on it. And he looks at the guards, <laughs> and that's it. He broke the Roman seal by pushing away the stone, <clears throat> which is a violation of the law, by the way. It was a violation of Roman law. And the guards never, never see Jesus coming out. If this were fabricated, wouldn't they say, and when the Lord came out, he just was glowing and big bursts of light and flashes of lightning and nothing. Why wasn't it reported? Because nobody saw it. Nobody saw him coming out. If this had been fabricated, don't you think that they'd make that, you know, the most special thing? 
Jesus comes, you know, twirling out or something. <clears throat> you think, this, this argues again for the authenticity of this account. The account reporting <clears throat> no witnesses to the moment of his leaving the tomb argues against its fabrication. The religious leaders and the guards would not have had to invent a story to cover up the resurrection. So it says in Matthew 28, Now while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, that means they had to reconvene the Sanhedrin, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day, and it is to this day, that his disciples stole the body. This was totally made up. Now, the Roman soldiers were going to be executed because when you're put as a guard, if the body's taken away, you lose your life. Now, Pilate was in Jerusalem at that time. He was mainly in Caesarea, Probably, so they didn't want to go back to Pilate or they were dead. If it had been a few fishermen, seven of the disciples were fishermen, you had a tax gatherer in, uh, among them, and, and don't you think this Roman guards could have fended them off? If it had been his disciples. But it says, just say you were asleep. And we'll win over the... the and, but actually, the other gospel says that the governor found out, the pilot found out, and he had them all executed anyway. They got their money, but they all died. But <clears throat> it says, his disciples, say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. If asleep, how did they know who took the body? If you're asleep, how do you know? Right? You're asleep, you don't know who took the body. The religious leaders and the guards inventing and propagating such a story argues against the fabrication of the resurrection account. What they did, they had to quickly come up with a story. What did they do? They came up with a story that made no sense. We were asleep. The disciples took him. If you're asleep, how do you know? This is what happens when you make up a story, especially make up a story quickly. It just falls apart. It makes no sense. They're having to fabricate such a story argues that the resurrection account is not a fabrication. The four gospel accounts would have been more duplicative in their testimony of the events. One day, two students in my class, they, were, they, were going on a, on a, they had to go on a class trip on the night of an exam. And, they, and so what happened was, I, I told them, okay, the, the professor who they were going with, it was some class, something or another, for another class they had to go on. And I gave the exams in an envelope with my own hand to the professor, and I, say, I said, okay, just send them separately to their rooms, let them take the exams, they have two hours, then return it to you, put them in the envelope, give them to me, and I'll take care of it. So they had to take the exam the same night that the students in my class had to take the exam. That's what I do when students are traveling. And so he did that, they came back, and, and I thought, you know, rather than give them, finding the TAs and giving it to them to grade, I'll just grade these two. I can grade two exams faster than it is finding the TAs. <clears throat> so I sat down and I graded one exam. Okay. Then I start grading the other exam. And look at it. I just saw the same wrong answer on that exam. And I just saw the same wrong answer on that exam. With organic chemistry, there's one right answer and there's a million wrong answers. When the wrong answers are the same, something's wrong. Not only were the wrong answers the same, the wrong answers, the molecules were drawn at exactly the same tilt. When you have duplicity, it speaks of collusion. Precise overlap in the counting of events speaks of collusion. Police know this. Attorneys know this. When you have two people and describe to you an event that they just saw and they overlap, strongly overlap, these two people have colluded. It never happens that way. One day, 
I heard a man make a confession to a crime. My pastor was there. Heard the same thing. It ended up going to court. The man recanted his confession, said he never said it. They get my pastor on the stand, and I'm watching. The pastor goes through the events as they happen. And I'm like, you old man? You don't even remember how this occurred. I mean, it's basically the same, but in detail, it was very different than the way I remembered it. Same happens when people witness a car accident. When you have the same account, if these guys were fabricating the account, they'd be writing it and, 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 and they say, oh, what did you write? Okay, okay, let's just make sure we all keep our accounts consistent here. You see the four Gospels, you don't see this. You don't see this at all. The resurrection account reporting the events as a complementary set of records rather than duplicative set are argued, rather than a duplicative set, argues against its fabrication. Had these things been much closer in alignment, it's a dead ringer for fabrication because it speaks of collusion. If the resurrection account had been fabricated, the apostles would have been shown in a more favorable light and not as being timid and unbelieving. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. I mean, if I was faking this, the woman told me, he's alive, I would have said, of course he's alive. He said this multiple times. How would you think otherwise? Luke 24, 10 and 11. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. They would never have written themselves in this negative light if they were fabricating it. The exposed weaknesses of the apostles argues against the resurrection's fabrication. This is an interesting story in the Bible. This comes from the book of Acts. This is exactly what happens when you're trying to write yourself in a good light. This is what I do. A situation occurs and I'm not real flattered about it. I tell the truth, but I just kind of... Don't give all the details of my weaknesses in it. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when he stretched out, he was stretched out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. This commander was in big trouble for taking a Roman citizen and putting him in chains without being condemned. Look at what this commander writes about this situation to his own commander. Claudius Lysus to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges before him. So you see what he does. He never says, uh, I blew it, I put him in chains, I had him stretched out in thongs, I was going to torture this guy. He just wrote himself in a good light. This is exactly what you do. If you're fabricating something, you never cast yourself in a negative light. This is why the, the history of Israel <clears throat> was purely written by the prophets and not by the kings. <clears throat> if it had been fabricated, there would have been omens and curses proclaimed against those who sought to investigate. They would have said, you know, if you try to investigate this, your firstborn child will die, your eyes will just shrivel up in your head, you surround it with omens. But, <clears throat> but they never do that. They proclaim the witness, and again and again, they said, here's the people, here's the witness. So that they proclaim this witness, that the disciples invite inquiry throughout the witness, it argues that, and there are no omens listed for searching out the account, it argues against the resurrection's fabrication. There are no omens. You read other religions, they say, you question this, you're going to go to hell for sure. 
Not in Christianity. So check it out. Check it out. Come on. Bring it on. <clears throat> it never, if it had been a fabrication, they never would have preached as an essential element of the new faith, the resurrection. It's too lofty. So in other words, why would you put upon people, you want to, you want to build a new religion? You have to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you'd never set that bar. You'd say, Jesus loved the little children. He loves you. Come on, he loves you. Let's build, let's build a new religion. Let's get his name. Jesus loves you. He'll empower you. No, it says you've got to believe in the resurrection of Christ. They never would have put this as a requirement. That this testimony... He says, if, you, confess, if you, you have to believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, you're still in your sins. If that belief in the resurrection was made a requirement for entry into the new faith, it speaks of the resurrection's authenticity. And finally, the apostles, upon facing death, would have recanted their testimony. Many people die for what they believe. Many of you would die for what you believe about Jesus. Many people die People die for what they believe all the time. People die for their country. They believe in this country. People die for what they believe all the time. Many are willing to suffer and die for what they believe to be true. But nobody suffers and dies for what they know to be a lie. These disciples knew this to be true. We believe it to be true because we look back. They knew it to be true. Had they known it to be a lie, they never would have died for it. These disciples didn't just die a normal death. Some of them, it says they were, not in the scriptures, extra-biblical test tells they were flayed alive. That means you're tied down and your skin is peeled off you while you're living. Flayed alive. Peter was crucified upside down. Two of them were boiled in oil. You'd think they'd go, ah, April Fools, is this a joke? I'll show you where the body is and then we're cool? didn't happen. didn't happen. Nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. They only die if they know it to be true. That the apostles were tortured and killed for their testimony of the resurrection supports the resurrection's authenticity. So, now you say, well, you're a Christian, <clears throat> that's why you say this. Let's look at Will Durant. Will Durant wrote The, Sto the Story of Civilization. Anybody ever look through that volume? It's huge, like eight volumes of stuff. And it, it's, there's a volume, called, there's a, there, in volume three, there's a chapter called Caesar and Christ. It's the story of civilization. <clears throat> this man wrote from the beginning of human civilization right through the mid-1900s. Mid Will Durant, you say, well, Will Durant was a Christian. He wasn't. He, he says of himself, I'm still an agnostic with pantheistic overtones. So he's not a Christian. So he's not favorable to the Christian faith in particular. But he's an excellent historian. So what do historians say about the Gospel accounts? You want validity of this? <clears throat> Here's what he has to say. Commenting on the Gospel, he says, The contradictions are of minutia, not substance. In essentials, the synoptic Gospels agree remarkably well and form the, a consistent portrait of Christ. In the enthusiasm of its discoveries, the higher criticism has applied to the New Testament tests of authenticity so severe that by them a hundred ancient worthies, for example, Hammurabi, David, and Socrates, would fade into legend. He says, if anything was scrutinized as much as the New Testament has been scrutinized because of something called higher criticism, all the other ancient things would have faded away. Nothing is as authentic as, as this. And this is a guy who's an agnostic. Despite the prejudices and theological preconceptions of the evangelists, they record many incidences that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the references of some auditors to his possible insanity, his early uncertainty as to his mission, his confessions of ignorance as to the future, his moments of bitterness, his despair and cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. When Will Durant, as a historian, sees what's written here, he says, this has got to be authentic. They never would have written about Jesus and themselves this way if it were not authentic. 
He says that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospel. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teachings of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature of the history of Western man. This is an unbiased historian, what he says to the accounts that we just read a small part of. The outcome. What about you? Since the resurrection is indeed true, how should it change our lives? If Jesus has risen physically from the dead, how does it change our lives? Does it change our lives? He died on the cross for a reason. He rose from the dead. And his death on the cross was not an easy thing. It says his body was shredded. In the end of Isaiah 52, it says that when he comes, his body is going to be so shredded, he'll be unrecognizable as a man. His body was so shredded in the scourging. This is the death that he underwent for you and me. This should change our lives. That he underwent this. It says that he delivers us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Out of darkness and into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. This is why you've been delivered out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To proclaim his excellencies. This book is true. It is valid. It is real. He has died and risen from the dead. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is so true. And Jesus lives because he's risen from the dead. Father, I pray that if there be anyone here whose faith has been in vain because they don't believe in the physical resurrection, Father, bring them to that point of believing. And I thank you, Father, because your Spirit is able to take a man, to take a woman, and give them the faith to believe in the resurrection. Father, I pray that if there be anyone here who doesn't know you, save their souls. Let them come to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in the physical resurrection. And Father, I pray for the rest, that they would never forget that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he underwent the scourging and pain and the resurrection, that he might offer up prayers on their behalf, as the scriptures say, that he intercedes on their behalf. Father, I pray that they take hold of you and never turn back to darkness. Father, get hold of their lives, I pray, and have mercy on them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.